0: I'm happy to introduce Matt Miller. Matt Miller is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a contributing editor at Fortune, and the host of KCRW's Left, Right, and Center. Miller's first book, The 2% Solution, Fixing America's Problems in Ways Liberals and Conservatives Can Love, was published in 2003 and was a Los Angeles Times bestseller. In its cover review, the Washington Post's Sunday Book World called 2% quote, a welcome return to political thinking On a big canvas agenda, unquote. The Wall Street Journal called it a small marvel of a book. His uh, new book, The Tyranny of Dead Ideas, was published last week by Henry Holt Times Books. In his business life, Mr. Miller is a senior advisor to McKinsey and Company, where he advises on strategic communications, serves clients in the firm's healthcare, strategy, public sector, and nonprofit practices, and counsels the McKinsey Global Institute, the firm's in-house economics think tank. Miller served as senior advisor to the director of the Office of Management and Budget from 1993 to 1995. From 1991 to 1992, he was a White House fellow serving as special assistant to the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. Mr. Miller received a BA in economics from Brown University and a law degree from Columbia Law School. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Screen Actors Guild, thanks to a cameo appearance in the thriller The Siege. He lives with his family in Los Angeles. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Matt Miller.
1: This is not. Uh, this is not unlike what happens at Left, Right, and Center sometimes. When we're, at, are there any listeners Starbucks. of Left, Right, and Center here? Yes. There's. Um. I was in Florida last week, cuz I was visiting my father for his seventy-fifth birthday, and so I, whenever I am out of town on Fridays, I, you know, you can usually find a studio wherever you are. And there was a studio in West Palm Beach where my dad spends part of the year, and it was a regular professional studio. I've done Left, Right, and Center from little shacks, you know, in different places where there's just a guy with a computer and a and a mic, and this was a proper studio, and it turned out we couldn't get a mic to work for some reason. The feedback was, so I actually hosted it by telephone, which is a much worse sound quality, if you know so. If you didn't like what I said last week, it's clearly the phone technology that was, uh, that was the problem. Um, well, let me say I'm delighted, Gregory Rodriguez, and want to thank him uh, for uh, welcoming me to Zocalo. I think Zocalo does such great stuff in Los Angeles, and um, and Gregory himself has become such a terrific voice on politics and culture, and uh, he's uh, he's funny to boot. So uh, it's great to it's great to have a chance to uh, work with him on this technology the way we've had a chance to tonight. Um, the great what, the, one of the things I admire about Zocolo is that it uh, it's it's creating a home for diverse. Angelenos, uh, which is something I appreciate because there's lots of different kinds of diversity, but w- one of the ones that uh, I find myself sometimes uh, 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 falling into is, is sort of ideological diversity, because uh, I'm glad Zocalo could make room for someone who, uh, who doesn't fit into a neat ideological box. Now, I'm a Democrat. Uh, I worked in the Clinton White House, and um, so, there's no question where my, um, where my goals and sympathies lie, but I, I view myself as a little bit eclectic ideologically, and sometimes that gets me into the trouble. When, I, you know, when people know I'm the center on left, right, and center, uh, I often tell folks uh, who aren't in LA that b- being in the center in Los Angeles is practically like being a Marxist in the rest of the country. So. <laughs> So you have to understand, I remember there was a one time a few years ago E.J. Dion subbed for me when, uh, when I was out of town and couldn't do the show. And he said, it's a great show, but you ought, ought to call it left, lefter, and leftist. And, and I think this, this may have even been before Ariana Huffington made her sort of evolution uh, from the right, which she was when we started the show a dozen years ago. So uh, you know, I tend to think of myself as an economically rational liberal. I'll call myself that sometimes. Uh, I made the mistake the other night when I was doing the Colbert rapport for the book, uh, of, of mentioning that some people had called me a radical centrist, to which Colbert sort of leaned back and said, radical centrist? Isn't that kind of like being a take no prisoners pussy? <laughs> so uh, the, the whole experience, actually, of doing Colbert was, was hysterical like that, when, when, when you weren't being sort of busy being uh, you know diced up in a very funny way. Even backstage, before they start the show, um, they come in, it turns out the writers actually brainstorm. You know, they, they know your book is about dead ideas, and they've apparently given Colbert a little sheet of a few things he might ask, which they say he may ignore, but just so you'll know, you know, so five minutes before the show they tell you this, so it won't be the first time this assault comes at you when you're actually on stage with him. It turned out he didn't use these questions, but they really cracked us up in the green room. One was, this is about, you know, the tyranny of dead ideas. One was, so uh, why should we get rid of the old ideas if the new ones suck? Uh, Another another one was, even if the old ideas don't work anymore, shouldn't we keep doing them out of a sense of tradition? (laughs) Now I think think the answer to that question is no, and I want to try and persuade you of that tonight. Now I, I don't need to tell you we meet at an auspicious moment. This is one of the scariest moments in recent memory if you think about what's happening in the economy and in the markets. It's one of the most hopeful, if you think about uh, or if at least you share my feeling about the excitement uh, around Barack Obama's election and the new team that he's about to bring in with him next week to start start to put us on a new course. The world is watching. Uh, there's intense interest now in the kinds of decisions and choices that the United States is going to make at this crossroads over the next uh, period of months and and years. In fact, it was surprising that we just sold the Chinese rights to the tyranny of dead ideas. Um, I I didn't quite expect that, but it's just another minor piece of evidence that there's just interest around the world in the question of wither American capitalism. What is happening to our system? Are we going to be able to sustain our our global leadership? And are we going to continue to have the, the kind of system that thrives? I'm told that the translation in Chinese of the tyranny of dead ideas is, do not let the demoted ideas control your world. So that's, the, uh, that's, the, that's the, gonna be the fun title uh, when, we, uh, when we hit the road in China. But the truth is I agree, I don't think we should let the demoted ideas control our world. So at this important hour, I'm coming before you on what I think of as a, a modest mission to open the American mind because I believe the battle to save the economy and our future actually begins inside our heads. The story I have to tell starts with some grim realities, but it ends with enormous hope. So long as each of us commits to moving past old ways of thinking and to making the world safe for our political leaders to do the same thing. It's a story that involves three facts, four forces, six dead ideas, and seven new ways of thinking that are destined to replace them. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's 20 things. That adds up to 20 things. That's a lot to remember. Most of us, when we get a phone number, uh, you know, a second later from information, we can't remember it, and that's only 10 digits. Now, I promise you, it's, uh, this is going to be very easy to recall. Uh, and you don't need to take notes. It's all in the book. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss the richness of that material. You know, the, uh, the, the, the stirring historical narrative, the accessible economics, the soaring prose, so, uh, which, of course, I'm not going to be able to begin to do justice to in this talk. So you're just going to have to read the whole thing, or at least buy it, which is all my publisher says I can ask of you anyway. So let's, let's, let's plunge in. Three facts are now poised to shape our economic life for a generation. First, thanks to global competition and rapid technological change, Large chunks of the U.S. economy are about to face their severest threat in nearly a century. Second, our political and business leaders are doing next to nothing to begin to help us cope with this. And third, that's because our entire political and economic culture is in the grip of a series of what I call dead ideas about the way a modern advanced economy like the United States should work. So this book is about the threat now posed to individuals, companies, and the country by the things we think we know and by the new and surprising ways of thinking that are destined to replace these dead ideas so that America can continue to prosper. The next decade, I believe, is gonna bring a collision of forces that threaten to disrupt U.S. society, sink the middle class, and call into question the political and business arrangements on which our prosperity and stability have depended for decades. These perils go far beyond the current housing-related financial crisis that's plunged us into the recession we're now in. In fact, the need to steer our way through This near-term economic challenge is masking longer-term problems that I think are far more consequential. The stakes couldn't be higher. If America doesn't decisively manage these tides of change, we'll face a backlash against our economic system, which for all its flaws, has done more to create uh, improvement for more humanity over a longer period of time than any other model that's yet been created. Now, if this backlash proves contagious, I believe, and other advanced nations lose faith in capitalism's ability to improve the lives of ordinary people, then the rich world's efforts to protect its citizens from economic change will doom the developing world to dollar-a-day poverty. Now, the good news there is there are ways to avert these dark scenarios into flourish. The trouble is we're not doing what we need to do because of what I call the tyranny of dead ideas. Now, by this I mean the tacit assumptions and ingrained instincts that are broadly shared by business executives, professionals, policymakers, media observers, maybe even a few of us in this room, regarding the way a wealthy advanced economy like the United States should work. Now, while current thinking about the American economy is hardly monolithic, the folks who occupy a lot of influential positions hold certain key premises. They believe that our children will earn more than we do. That free trade is good, in quotes, no matter how many people it hurts that employers should play a central role in the provision of health coverage, that taxes hurt the economy and they're always too high, that local control and funding of schools is essential, and that people tend to end up in economic terms where they deserve to. Now these are ideas that have percolated through the culture for decades. They become second nature to many of us. They determine which paths we consider, which large questions we view as settled, which possibilities we allow ourselves to imagine. And therein, in my view, lies the problem. From the halls of government to the executive suite, from the corner store to the factory floor, Americans are in the grip of a set of ideas that are not only dubious or dead wrong, they're on a collision course with social and economic developments that are now irreversible. As these new realities crash against what people believe, there's a strange intellectual chasm that's being revealed. It's not just ordinary people who are disoriented. This is uh, even the people who are running the economy themselves are lost, at least to judge by the kind of weird reasoning that we're seeing on display from a lot of them. Consider a few examples. CEOs routinely bemoan how skyrocketing health costs are killing their business, especially when they're in competition with firms abroad where uh, governments end up picking more of the tab. Yet in the next breath, most executives say that America's government should not play a bigger role in bearing this burden. Well, I ask who else do they think is available? That's example one. Second, politicians and business leaders say we should cut taxes for most, some would say all Americans, in order to boost the economy. Yet America's already got about $40 trillion of unfunded promises in Social Security and Medicare and related programs, and that's before we toss in a whole bunch of good ideas that are on the books to insure the uninsured, develop clean energy, rebuild roads and bridges, extend preschool and more. Has anyone noticed that these numbers don't come remotely close to adding up? Next, everyone agrees that education is the key to rising living standards in this global economy where our kids are gonna be competing with kids from China and India and we need to lift all children, not just the most talented, to higher levels of uh, of, of achievement. Yet in the 2008 presidential campaign, not a single candidate from either party Question the, soc- the shockingly unjust system of school finance that we have in the United States, which dooms schools in poor neighborhoods in ways that no other advanced nation tolerates. How are 10 million poor children in America supposed to compete? Last example top economists in both political parties routinely tell us that free trade is good for the country, quote, good for the country, because the benefits to some Americans outweigh the losses suffered by other Americans. But wait, who put economists in charge of weighing the interests of one set of Americans against another? Now, as puzzles like these ricochet across boardrooms, union offices, town hall meetings, and kitchen tables, I think the question's ask themselves. Why are business leaders afraid or unwilling to say that we need government to play a bigger role in healthcare? How can top officials call constantly for tax cuts when trillions in unpaid bills are coming due? Why do politicians pledge to leave no child behind while they oversee public school systems that systematically assign the least qualified teachers in the most run-down facilities to the kids who need great schools the most? Finally, why do trades losers only get lip service, even from elected officials who think that workers today are getting the shaft? I think the best explanation isn't cynicism, selfishness, or indifference, Nor is it really an inability to perceive and act in one's long-term self-interest. I think the deeper ailment afflicting, afflicting today's confused capitalists is intellectual inertia. In every era, people grow comfortable with ideas, with settled ideas about the way the world works. It takes an extraordinary shock to expose the conventional wisdom as obsolete and to open people's minds to a new vision of what is possible and what is necessary. Yet eventually, I think a point gets reached when what was once deemed unthinkable comes to seem inevitable. The climate of opinion is transformed by events. This happened in the Great Depression, when mass unemployment and hardship swept away long-standing taboos about federal intervention in the economy. It happened during the Civil Rights Movement, when televised horrors convulsed the nation and created an outrage that led to the ending of legal legal discrimination based on race. It happened again in the 1970s, when recession, oil shocks, and inflation mixed with a sense that welfare programs had spun out of control, and that all created a new consensus to renew the economy's animal spirits via lower tax rates. But the forces of the 21st century global economy and the current economic crisis, serious as it is, have not yet proved strong enough to topple the unquestioned ideas that still continue to shape American economic life. Ideas about the nature of economic progress, the role of the federal government and of the corporation, and the best way to balance the risks capitalism brings with the security people naturally seek. For now, in short, America's economic future is at risk because of the tyranny of dead ideas. Now, the current recession and the meltdown of the financial system has obviously produced a quick consensus about the role of government in a crisis. The feds have been acting in unprecedented ways. We've seen interventions that could have, would have been unthinkable uh, just a few years ago, but it's not at all clear that this commotion even the huge stimulus plan that we're about to see enacted by uh, President Obama and Congress when they uh, when they when they take the helm in a few weeks it's not at all clear this has altered the way we're going to see things when we are not still in a crisis and that day will come i think president obama therefore has a rare opportunity to help us lead the to, to lead the rethinking that we need But in my view, this deeper change will come also through a shock administered by four forces that are set to accelerate in the next decade, even after we get past this current recession. The first of these forces is what I call white-collar anxiety, and by that I'm referring to the fact that jobs higher up the income scale, lawyers, doctors, financiers, consultants, will for the first time be exposed to competition from places like India and China. Some experts say as many as 40 million American jobs are going to be vulnerable to this in the coming decades. It's been hard enough to maintain a consensus for free trade and technological change as lower paid manufacturing and service jobs have moved overseas. What I wonder is how, is business, how are business and politics going to be reshaped when hungry foreign rivals set wage levels and trigger downward mobility for better educated and politically potent folks in ways that have not been previously imaginable? The second force is what I call the rush for the exits, and by that I mean the corporate corporate America's desire to basically stop providing health care and pensions to its employees. Now in one sense, because these costs are soaring, so their concern is understandable because it seems unsustainable, especially when American companies are competing against firms in other nations where uh, the government, as opposed to corporations, bear most of those costs. Still, American business leaders act as if their search for an exit strategy on benefits is going to be the end of the conversation. But what happens to the millions of workers who are left unprotected if companies simply walk away? The third force is what I call the gray boomer fiscal squeeze. And by that I mean the way the aging, we have some boomers here. By that I mean the way the aging members of the baby boom are shortly going to be uh, retiring and then sending uh, health and pension costs through the roof. The result at current levels of taxation is that even big government. What we call big government is going to be strapped with little cash to devote to other public purposes we expect government to take care of, like border security and basic scientific research to schools. Nor will the government be in a position to broaden its safety net as corporate America withdraws its own. Is it going to simply abandon these vital functions? If not, how will government cope without raising taxes to, uh, to levels that wreck economic growth? The fourth force, the final force, is what I call the rise of extreme inequality. Even as the forces I just listed raise risks for most Americans, as we know, the very top of the wealth and income scale is pulling away at, at levels never before seen. Yet it's also clear that many of the winners from this are reaping the rewards not of the free market, but of clubby, manipulated schemes that as often reward failure as reward success. You know, Think about it, bankers, bankers who pocketed tens of millions peddling subprime mortgages are now retired to the country club while the entire nation is is holding the bag. CEOs who preside over stumbling stock prices routinely walk away with $100 million for their trouble. Hedge fund managers who don't beat the S&P can often make that kind of sum in a single year. At what point does the ubiquity of the undeserving rich become so corrosive in a democracy that it sparks a backlash that wrongly discredits capitalism altogether now I think the collision of these forces is going to expose m- most of our much of our traditional thinking is dangerously flawed it's also going to hurl us toward a moment when fundamental questions are up for grabs in a way that they haven't been since the post-world War II period when the architects of a new economic order sat down then to chart a course beyond depression and war can the middle class Can middle class societies be sustained in wealthy nations in an era of globalization? Can democracy survive the emergence of what I'm calling extreme inequality? How will these trends affect our posture toward the hopes and dreams of the developing world? Can Americans build secure and happy lives amidst all this tumult? I think the answer to these questions is going to depend on how quickly we escape the pernicious influence of six dead ideas. Let me sketch them briefly and then we can do more, uh, if you like, in the the Q&A. The first dead idea, and this is a grim one, is the idea that the kids will earn more than we do. That's the idea that's really been at the, the heart of the American dream, a pattern of generational advance that we've considered uh, an American birthright. Yet the latest research shows that up to 100 million Americans now live in homes that are earning less than their parents did at a similar age. So this is something that threatens uh, something that's really bred in the bone in American culture. We were the classless society uh, as our founders escaped from, uh, from, the, uh, from from the whole idea of monarchy and aristocracy and a class system. It's been something that's been baked into our culture from everything from Horatio Alger to uh, all the stories we grew up on on Ben Franklin and Abraham Lincoln to Jay Gatsby types in literature, the self-invented man who can rise. On his own strength is something that I think for many Americans is going to be at risk now. And I think the implication of that, the way it plays into our public life, is that we've overestimated the power of the individual to shape his economic destiny. And I think that as a result of the economic forces that are making this idea a dead idea, uh it's going to require and going to call on us to rebalance the role of the individual and the community in making sure we have the opportunity and security we think that citizens of a wealthy nation in a decent society ought to have. So that's the first dead idea. The second dead idea is that free trade is good no matter how many people get hurt. I've touched on this. Though millions of people may get hurt by foreign competition, we're told, the overall gains from free trade so outweigh any downside that it's folly to question its ultimate advantages. In the book, I lay out why that this is not true even as a matter of economic science. And that economists from both parties have been hyping the case for trade politically in ways that um, in ways that are mostly designed to benefit people outside the United States. The redeeming feature of the uh, of the free trade crowd. And again, you'll, as you'll see if you look at the book, and we can talk about in Q and A. I'm not a protectionist. I'm not saying protection is the answer, but protections for Americans in the face of economic change, meaning health care that's not tied to a job pension security that's not based totally on an employer, these kinds of things, unemployment insurance that's more generous, have to be in place if we're going to have a decent society even in the face of these global forces. The third dead idea is what I call your company should take care of you. This is the whole employer-based system of health care and benefits that we almost uniquely have in the wealthy world. Uh, We almost alone have decided to administer a lot of the American welfare state through private corporations. And there's a whole history to this that really had to do with beating off socialism, beating off unions, you know, sort of winning the twilight struggle after World War II against communism and socialism. But we won that war. That's not the problem. Uh, the, the challenge we face today is not that America's going to become socialist, no matter how many industries we seem to be nationalizing in recent weeks. But once we're past this current, uh, current we kind of a one-time crisis, the real challenge is that we're gonna become protectionist and therefore hurt ourselves and other countries because there's so much economic anxiety now uh, that there's gonna be, understandably, folks want, to, want some kind of uh, deeper sense of security in this changing world. A big piece of getting beyond that is to convince the country that the idea that your company should take care of you isn't the way it should work. It should be government playing a bigger role, and we can talk about that more uh, in, the, in the Q&A. The uh, next dead idea is that taxes hurt the economy and they're always too high. Now it's a dead idea because as I quote even John McCain's top advisors in the book, taxes are going up in the next decade, not in the next year and a half or so while we fight this recession, but after that, taxes are going up no matter who is in power because we can't retire the baby boom, we can't double the number of people on social security and medicare and begin to deal with the 40 or 50 trillion we already have in unfunded promises in these programs and do what we think should be done for non-elderly Americans, if we think the government has a role in that, without taxes that are going to be higher as a share of the economy. The good news is we're not going to become France or Sweden. I know in in some corners of L.A. that's a disappointing statement, but we're we're not going to become France or Sweden, and the economy will be just fine. This is an undiscussable fact in our political life today for reasons you understand. The Republicans have been rotting the tax issue since Ronald Reagan. They're sad to think that the demographic wave is going to force them to give it up, but the, even their far-sighted thinkers know that the tax issue is uh, on its last legs. And Democrats, obviously, because uh, the Republicans use that issue to pound them, have to be for tax cuts too. So no one can talk about the fact that taxes are going up no matter who's in power after this recession has passed, and we will be fine. That's another dead idea. The fifth one is what I call schools are a local matter. And this is the kind of radical tradition of localism we have uh, in America where we have, again, unique, unique in the wealthy world, we leave it to 15,000 local school districts to largely fund and set standards for what kids ought to know. And that has, uh, is for reasons I alluded to before, dooms poor kids, I think, in ways that are uh, just unjust and wrong. They're also, it also hurts the country economically because you can't leave millions and millions and millions of kids behind in a global era when, uh, when what you can earn, as President Clinton always famously said, depends on what you can learn. And unless we have a greater role for the federal government uh, in some of this stuff, we won't get uh, where we need to go. Again, another dead idea that's very difficult uh, for leaders to discuss. The last dead idea is what I call money follows merit. And there, uh, my argument is that the most cherished illusion of today's educated class is that market capitalism is a meritocracy. In other words, that people end up economically where we uh, where people deserve to. And I think that, again, that's something that's had a long hold on the American mind. It has less of a hold abroad. And I think that, uh, as I talk about in the book, the way the lower upper class is beginning to realize that this isn't true because they look at the uh, errant CEOs and hedge fund managers and sort of racketeers all over who seem to occupy – not everybody. I'm not against wealth. I'm a capitalist, but there's so much of this now going on at the top. I think that's awakening what I call the lower upper class, a very influential segment of our society, to the fact that the whole meritocratic, uh, uh, the way people aced their tests and went to the best school and did their SATs right and got the best job, doesn't necessarily link anymore with being the having the the the, the, the uppermost rewards that society has to offer. And I think that's good. that empathy. I think the empathy that that awakens in this influential group of what I call the lower uppers is going to make them a powerful constituency for the kind of change we need for folks who are in much tougher straits, all the folks below the lower upper class who are really being buffeted by forces beyond their control. And in the book, I talk about how this is similar to what happened in the progressive era, where it was the status anxiety of the lower uppers, the professionals, that ended up being a lot of the political energy behind, behind what became progressivism. So those are the, those are my dead ideas. Now, the persistence of these ideas generally involves a failure to adapt to changing circumstances, which is obviously a recurring feature of human thought and behavior. In that sense, I think that these outworn concepts are part of a broader phenomenon that afflicts every organization, and each of us is individuals. The question at the heart of the book, which is, is our old ways of thinking preventing America from adapting the way it needs to to the challenges now posed by globalization are thus very similar to questions like why didn't newspapers realize more quickly that the internet was a fundamental threat to their business or even to such questions as why doesn't John realize that Emily's new job means that he's got to spend more time helping with the kids. I think I think that the uh, that the way The way that in each case, emotional or intellectual inertia inertia traps people in antiquated ways of thinking, even though circumstances radically change. Now you can't develop a strategy for a country, or a company, or uh, certainly not for yourself if you're blinded by misconceptions that no longer reflect the real world. When the day of reckoning comes for a dead idea, things can change very quickly and also very painfully. We've just been through the implosion of the dead idea that financial markets can regulate themselves. This was what had been widely believed. This was what was behind some of the bubble and the uh, situation we've seen. And, you know, within a matter of weeks, as markets tumbled, uh, companies that seemed to be name brand famous companies suddenly collapsing, all these old ideas and convictions had to be tossed out the window. And you had unprecedented government interventions being put in by an administration that only days before had worshipped at the altar of. Utterly free markets, so um, you know if this if this dead idea had been exposed some time before, a lot of pain and suffering could have been avoided, and I think that similarly, the other dead ideas I'm talking about are lying in wait to ensnare us unless we change the way we think and change the way we act. What's more, even though the fallout from the current financial crisis is serious, I also believe it's going to be temporary in a couple of years. we will have righted the system, the economy will be back on track. And, uh, and we will have gotten through uh, this very difficult period. In the longer term, I'm arguing, the consequences for the economy and for all of us of the dead ideas at the heart of this book are far greater. So let me close with how we explode these dead ideas. I mean, what I'm trying to do in the book is basically unearth these premises that have become so deeply ingrained in our economic life that they've become invisible. So you know, my, my aim in the book is to kind of dig them up, dust them off, turn them over in the light, and help people assess why they don't make sense any longer. This is perfectly safe to try at home, by the way. There's even a chapter in the book that at least tries to suggest how you can use the same way of thinking to help move past dead ideas in your business or your nonprofit or your organization, even maybe in ways that are useful in your relationships. So breaking free of dead ideas entails basically three steps. First, you have to identify the dead ideas that matter. Now, in our public life, there are probably dozens of dead ideas that matter, I'm focused on six in our private lives. I'm sure we can all, you know, come up with hundreds in our at the office or in our in our workplace. So, you know, I myself couldn't get through the day without a good dead idea. The one that I cling to in my professional life is that rational analysis can lead to constructive change. <laughs> uh, if you have read any, if you have read any history, you may know that this uh, this 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 idea may never have been that live in the first place. But uh, there's only really a handful of ideas that are, dead ideas that are big enough at any time to pose fundamental threats. Until the middle of the 19th century, for example, millions of Americans believed that an economy based on white human beings owning black human beings was moral and sustainable, right? That seems preposterous and grotesque to us now, but it shaped the contours of countless lives. Before 1920, it was perfectly reasonable in the United States to think that democracy does not require extending the vote to women, right? Seems like nuts, but that's that was commonly thought. Before 1913, when the Federal Reserve was established, sophisticated business people believed that economic stability can be maintained without a central monetary authority. Now, I'd hate to think, you know, even if the Fed missed the boat on a couple of things, if we didn't have Ben Bernanke and the Fed trying to throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall right now, uh, you know, we'd be in much worse straits than we're in, and yet there was a time when people thought this wasn't necessary, and the economy had things like we're going through now every seven or eight years. So uh, so there are lots of dead ideas, uh, obviously, to be exploded. The list goes on, and I think since there are so many to choose from, obviously the key in, uh, in, tr- in any effort to improve the prospects of the country, which I'm concerned with in the book, or a company or an organization, is to focus on the ones that are really strategic. You gotta step back from the rush of events and identify the premises that are really core to an entity's fate. And I think that for the US, as we uh, try and adapt successfully to the 21st century global economy, the six dead ideas I lay out at the heart of the book have the combination of high stakes and sacred cow status that have the potential to derail America's future success. So first, identify the dead ideas that matter. Second, understand each dead idea's story. Now I think, and this is what I spend time on in the book, is we can't move past a, a dead idea without understanding the source of its power. Where did it come from? Why did it once seem to make sense? What's changed in the circumstances in the world that now make it dangerous or harmful or counterproductive? Who has a stake in its persistence nonetheless? A big issue when it comes to dead ideas. What I try and do in the book is offer a mini biography of each dead idea in the first part of the book because I think that the mere act, and I found this true in the research of just reviewing the history and circumstances surrounding an idea, almost immediately trigger uh, new ways of thinking and alternatives that seem to make a lot more sense. So uh, so it's identifying the dead ideas that matter, understanding each dead idea's story, and then third, reach for new and, I would say, paradoxical ways of thinking. And I think that this final step, which is based on a, a more clear-eyed assessment of where things are today, is to try and find the new ways of thinking that not only seem needed, but are almost certain to come to pass because they better reflect reality than the old ideas we're dealing with. And in the book you'll see, uh, if you look, what I call destined ideas, from dead ideas to destined ideas, often seem paradoxical or taboo because conventional wisdom has gotten so disconnected from the facts that these other, these newer ideas seem startling or uh, or surreal or somehow off. I would say don't be fooled by that. The fact that they appear this way only speaks to how skewed our vision has become. I find it helpful to phrase these dead ideas as paradoxes because when you when you do it that way, it forces you to make sense of things that seem like contradictions only because we're not thinking about reality in the right way. So let me rattle off the destined ideas uh, by way of closing so you have a feel for what I'm talking about. And again, we can discuss more of this in the Q&A. Here are my destined ideas. The first one is, only government can save business. The second is only business can save liberalism, and we can talk about that if you like. The third is only higher taxes can save the economy and the planet. The fourth is only the lower upper class can save us from inequality. The fifth is only better living can save sagging paychecks. The sixth is only a dose of nationalization can save local schools. And finally, only lessons from abroad can save American ideals. So identify the dead ideas that matter, understand each one's story, and then reach for new and paradoxical ways of thinking. Now, I think this process is so straightforward, it's a little hard to understand why we keep getting trapped in these dead ideas, but I think we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. The perils of orthodoxy at moments of sudden or pervasive change have been with us forever. The blind spots that are bred by complacency or arrogance or certitude or habit fill the obituaries of civilizations that didn't make it, of businesses that didn't make it, even marriages that didn't make it. It's human nature, and it's the things we think we know but don't that end up being the chief obstacles to success in nearly every endeavor. In the end, though, I think the true measure of a person, an organization, or a society isn't the dead ideas we fall prey to. It's whether we can summon the perspective and imagination to identify the dead ideas in our midst and bury them before real damage or more damage is done. Thank you.
2: It's now time for our Q&A portion of the show. Please raise your hands if you have any questions. Uh, Questions. Please remember that we are being recorded, so we ask that you hold all your questions until we come to you with a microphone. And please state your full name before your question. Thank you.
3: I'm Alice Romano. My husband Renato is here. He's with Global Green Partners. And I noticed that you didn't address the influx, perhaps, of people from countries which are going to suffer greatly during the potential global warming. Delta countries, I've been told, will be sending many people to richer lands. And what we have had over, I think, the last several decades, especially here, is a failure of leadership. Some of these conditions I very much fear could lead to looking to a leader as a dictator or a dictator whom we create. And the question is, what about the influx of people? What about the potential for a dictator?
1: Uh, Well, it's a, um, and and I thought my scenarios were dark. Uh, (laughs) I would say, I I guess I'm more uh, hopeful than that. I realize that uh if if the worst scenarios of global warming become a reality and I myself don't pretend to know that that's something that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh that we're going to face challenges unlike anything we've ever had before and then all bets are off. But I guess I don't see I don't see anything like that happening in the near term and by that I mean the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so I think that we're pretty resilient as a a kind of democracy to not be subject to the kind of desire for a dictator but you know if if things like what you're describing ever came to pass then i think we have no idea what the political impact would be but that's that's beyond the scope of uh uh how far i can see in terms of what i what i've been thinking about in terms of this book
2: Mr. Miller question to your left
3: Yeah hi my name is Steven Zwick um and in, and in, in, let me see if i can do this cogently um in in reference to uh bigger governor expanded government is that they're also part of this assessment uh, of allocation of resources i mean when you look at um all the money that's uh, being spent in iraq iran or wherever um, you look at protecting the 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 pre-existing norm of you know oil dependency where rather than looking at newer ideas as to how we can uh use a third way of government, as Clinton referred to it, to um use government business uh contracts to generate uh stuff that's actually beneficial to the country for infrastructure new transportation systems that wean us off of those um, off of those old energy problems how do we um couch that or look at energy and this whole notion of dead ideas?
1: Uh, a couple of thoughts. First, I think we're going to see, as you know, I think Obama and his team are going to use the current crisis and the, and the the bipartisan consensus that we're going to spend what could be close to a trillion dollars in stimulus to help jumpstart some of the alternative energy investments that I think government can play some role in getting off the ground. But I think the, the way I deal with in the book is – when I say the taxes are going up, no matter who's in power, and the idea that uh, you know taxes hurt the economy and they're always too high is a dead idea. I think the inevitability of higher taxes is an opportunity for us to change the way we tax. The debate should become: How do we now um, raise the taxes we need for the government we want in a way that does the least harm for the economy and also accomplishes other goals like things on energy um, that we that we need to address? And to me, that means we should be taxing dirty energy. And consumption more, and taxing payrolls less, uh, for example, and I think there 's no way I see us getting to the energy future we need without much higher taxes on on uh, traditional fossil fuel energy and that 's again that 's something that poli- every other place in the world has much higher taxes than we have. We moaned about uh, uh, gas when it was it four dollars a gallon, and understandably that ha- that change had a huge impact on lots of people. But you have to remember the rest of the world is dealing with gas at 8 or 9 or $10 a gallon. And there are estimates that if you look at what the real cost is in terms of national security costs, environmental costs, if you reflected all of that in the price a gallon of gas, it would be 14 or $15. And so unless we get that market signal through higher taxes on this stuff, that I think will make it much more economically viable for all the creative entrepreneurial energy in the U.S. to deliver the new mechanisms we need that are going to be better for carbon emissions and better for our national security. So I think the piece of it, at least where, I, where, where I'm trying to uh, move the debate, is to is to make the case for these higher energy taxes as part of changing the way we uh, get the revenue we need.
2: Question to your left.
1: Good evening, sir. My name is Stephen Huey. And I was wondering where you see
3: the momentum coming from to move through the inertia that you talked about tonight. You mentioned slavery, uh, uh, women's suffrage, for instance. In all those instances, there were slavery, well the abolition movement, feminist movement. Today, is that going to be part of the labor movement? Will it be continued feminist movement, uh, anti-colonial movements? And also, how is that gonna be placed in the context of the political expediency that accompanied those changes that you referred to? For instance, um, Abraham Lincoln and, the, and freeing, freeing slaves in his declaration had to do with the Civil War and that political expediency. Law professor Derek Bell has pointed out that the Supreme Court decision influencing Brown versus Board of Education also had to do with the uh, the, uh, the Cold War. Um, so please tell me where you see this movement coming from.
1: Well, it's a, it's a great question, and one of the and I think a you know a revitalized labor movement is going to play a piece of this. And uh, if you follow the work of Andy Stern and others who are trying to rethink what labor does and um, and figure out a way that that unions can have a new role in a 21st century economy. I think that's going to be part of the answer. But I think also, just in terms of the raw politics of this, once business changes its mind on a lot of this stuff, I think the, the outdated thinking of business leaders is a big piece of what's holding the country back because they're a very powerful constituency, and they have a kind of, even though, as I talk about, uh... in the book that health care and pension costs are increasingly killing business and killing business competitiveness they're very reluctant to let government play a bigger role and i think as labor helps push them into that conversation and as some far-sighted business leaders begin to step out and realize the our old ideological blinder about what we think government should do in a twenty-first century economy is wrong as there's a kind of safety in numbers that will come for that that i think will help jumpstart a lot of the political changes that we need to make some of this happen. So, um, you know, I don't have a full answer. In some sense, I know, I, I believe strongly that the pressure of events as all these forces come together in the next decade, even past the current crisis, are going to create the conditions that force a whole different set of stakeholders to rethink. So I don't know if it's going to be one movement like the abolitionist movement, et cetera. And to be fair, some of these problems are not as... Uh, morally urgent and dramatic as slavery was. These are, uh, these are economic problems that are urgent to address, but it's not quite the same as, uh, as abolishing slavery. But I think, that, um, I think that all of us have a role to play in trying to change the conversation on this because that's the way a democracy works. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to be open to rethinking this way and then urging others and our leaders, especially in each sector, to make sure uh, they're open to these new ideas.
2: You have a question
1: to your left, Mr. Miller. They're all to the left. Why does that? Why does that fit a LA audience? That's right, a Santa Monica yeah. audience. Just I'm, kidding.
4: Paul Papenick from Los Angeles. I read your book last night, uh, and I'm and I'm a good sleeper. It was uh, was terrific. Um, uh, I, I'm wondering where you think the the book fits. We in, can
1: use that in promotional materials. I think
4: <laughs> it's it's pretty good. The backstory kept in me up all night. <laughs> it did. Uh, I, uh, but I'm wondering how this fits in with with other political discourse. I mean, we've seen we've seen other authors. Uh, I think e- even take a stronger stand than you take. I mean, we've got Krugman and we've got Jamie Galbraith who who say that the perpetuation of these bad ideas is, isn't an accident. It's not false thinking. It's I mean, this is a result of deliberate predatory behavior by folks who are who want to stay in power and who want to use the instruments of power. Um, i I wonder if we really if you if we 're going far enough with
1: this uh it 's a good question i guess i don 't think uh i think I think some of the dead ideas that I talk about there may be some people who qualify as predatory or evil who are trying to perpetuate those dead ideas because it serves their interests and there 's no question interest groups grow up around all these ideas, but they don 't fit as neatly into it 's just the those bad conservatives because If you look at local control of schooling, and again, people should know, I am all for parental involvement in schools, local sense of ownership of the direction of a school. That's obviously essential to a, it's obviously essential to the success of a school. But there's no question that the way that we, uh, the way that our system of local funding through property taxes and then assorted state taxes just dooms millions of kids. And it dooms them to the least qualified teachers in the country. And that's not a partisan dead idea. That's a, uh, everybody likes their local school district and there are a hundred thousand local school board members who if you want to raise the idea that local control is a dead idea will fiercely resist you. I've heard from them. So it's very hard I mean it's very hard for politicians, even the ones who will tell you privately in both parties behind closed doors that the way we set up local funding and, and the standard setting for schools makes no sense in the 21st century and it's killing us. Uh, it's very hard and it's not a partisan thing. Uh, to take on some of these things. And so I guess I just don't think it's as much a the evil cabal of a small group on the right, which I think is how some people characterize it. I'm not saying that there's not a evil cabal of some people on the right that's part of, part of the source of some of our problems, but I think a huge piece of our problems are these other things that also a lot of us end up being bought into and, and need to open our minds about. Question to your left again, Mr. Miller. I think we're going to have to move that left-leaning microphone to the right. Okay.
5: Hi, uh, uh, my name is Peter Cavanaugh. I want to thank you for your work and for your excellent radio program, which I listen to pretty often, fairly religiously. Um, uh,
1: I liked you the moment I saw you.
5: Okay. Um, I just want to ask, you know, it seems like over the last few weeks, there are more and more revelations about just how much greed and hubris has kind of gotten us into this mess that we're in right now, and uh, it also seems like another dead idea that's maybe sort of let this occur is sort of this, you know, American-centric feeling of entitlement that regular people have, not power brokers, but just average Americans, you know. I was born here. I'm entitled to be uh, a member of a superpower, and all my personal dreams will be fulfilled as long as I work hard and have good health. Uh, how much do you think entitlement is uh, an underlying cause of sort of allowing these things to happen with regular Americans, and, and what do you think <laughs> might be able to change that that trend?
1: Uh, another good question. I think, um, I should say, by the way, that um, if people have other ideas for Dead Ideas, we're running a contest for them on my website at at, at com, and there'll be signed copies and other forms of everlasting recognition for the... For the winners, uh, but it's funny the the thing you mentioned about just the uh, the, uh, the just a handful of some very greedy people helped contribute to this. I I did a blog entry on the I've got a new blog at the website talking about what I would like to see. I think I talked about this on the radio show too. Is I I would like to see a kind of hall of shame because it's really only you know at the if you go through the major financial institutions and then the uh, the top swaths of executives, there may be only yeah, you know, maybe five thousand people would be a generous figure of of whose perverse incentives in their compensation system led them to reap millions from, you know, cycling this junk that has now sort of doomed the entire economy. And the idea that we you know, the idea that we put in seven hundred billion dollars into these institutions or three hundred and fifty billion, whatever it is so far, and don't have a list of their names, so we can make a kind of, you know, a a weird financial I'm thinking of something simple like the Vietnam Memorial, just the names on a wall so that their families can see it forever I don't mean to offend the bankers in the audience if anybody if anybody here was responsible for the financial meltdown the country is facing I apologize but you know you know what I mean and I think when you talk about the sense of entitlement I actually talk about that in the book is one of the when I talk about what the consequences have been or the implications of the dead idea that the kids will earn more than we two we do the kind of um you know the perennial American conviction that there's gonna be this ever-rising tide I think is created it's been great in a lot of ways that's why we're a can-do nation we can put a man on the moon we can you know win world wars but the downside I think one of the downside is this sense of entitlement and this sense that um we can live beyond our means because you know we'll always end up with more later somehow and I think it it relates to the way the, the point I tried to make about the fact that I think we've overestimated the power of the individual to shape his economic destiny in this moment in economic history, because even plenty of people who are really hardworking and who are in good health won't be able to realize that dream in the decades ahead, and we have to think together as a society how to make sure that people are still going to have a good life, and they can, even though there's going to be a greater strain on that.
2: Question to your right, Mr. Miller. To
1: the right
4: actually from the center, a little bit like you. Uh, My name is Miles Clark, and my question has to do with some of that complacency that you were talking about uh, in regard to the education system. I I feel that, um, especially living in LA, um, California is a place that managed to at one point construct the greatest K through PhD public education system in the history of the world, and has seen that tumble. Um, I, I feel that in the past, our education revolutions have usually come under intense threat uh, the Soviet threats so we 've got to teach the kids all of them, all the math and uh, et cetera. Do you feel that we 're going to require a, a very visible threat prior to uh, reforming the education system?
1: Uh, I think politically it would sure help, and i had um, I had thought. I think I was totally wrong about this, but I had thought that the Beijing Olympics might have been a little early thing like that. You know, it's kind of like we need a new Sputnik moment to energize the nation in this way. And, um, you know, when you talk to politicians, their life, it's very hard for them to lead absent a crisis. That's the great opportunity of the moment we're in now. It's why Rahm Emanuel, you know, Obama's chief of staff, says, you know, a crisis is something, is a terrible, you don't want to waste a crisis because it's a chance to try and, do things that are very hard politically to do in ordinary times. So um, you don't want to hope for other crises that make it harder. And I don't think I think that Obama may be able to start doing some education stuff uh, because of the crisis we're in now. But it's not the same as realizing that uh, that the middle class's kids are having trouble getting jobs because more and more things can be done overseas. And even if the jobs don't go offshore, wages are going to be capped on more areas of work. And so. Um, A crisis would help. I don't know what that crisis is on the horizon, but something like a new Sputnik moment.
2: Question to your right, Mr. Miller.
1: To the right.
3: Mr. Miller, huge fan. Um, I'm Travis Wester. Hi. Hi. Um, So society comes up with a lot of really good ideas. Uh, Separation of church and state. It's a pretty good idea. Um, But then they also come up with some bad ones. Slavery. Uh, Women don't know what they're talking about. So I'm wondering if you could take a dead idea and sort of perform an autopsy on it. Why did society think it was a good idea? And then what killed it?
1: Well, that's that's a lot of what I try and do in the book because in each of the, each of the chapters that goes through the history of these dead ideas, I try and show why it made sense. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'll give you two quick examples. Local control of schools made perfect sense in the 19th century uh, and local funding of schools because back in those days, people didn't live segregated into separate taxing districts the way that we do today. And, and property tax was the main form of wealth. You had the, you know, the rich family on the hill, you had the merchants sort of in the middle and the poor folks living at the bottom, but they, they all paid, except for the poor folks, paid taxes through the property, and they shared the same public school. And that, you know, that, that made sense. And the idea that you'd have some, you know, the federal government, we've, we've been kind of an anti-federal society since we were formed, so the idea that the federal government back then would have any role in what uh, schools were doing was obviously seemed crazy. But when you flash forward to today, uh, there's a host of reasons why it doesn't make sense anymore. But it did make perfect sense at the time. And our system evolved differently than a lot of the places in Europe did um, for, for, for reasons that I explain in the book that helped make it make sense at, in our time. And in fact, interestingly, Horace Mann, the sort of father of public education, who was the Education Secretary of Massachusetts in the 1830s and 40s, his big effort then based on his study of the Prussian school system. He had gone to Prussia. He was very frustrated because he was a powerless uh, secretary of education in Massachusetts and didn't know how to coax all these local areas that really weren't doing right by kids. There were lots of districts that were just leaving tons of families and kids totally illiterate. And when he studied Prussia, which had a very, as you can imagine, centralized system with, uh, they, they trained teachers with the same intensity as they trained military officers, and he was blown away by this. And so his mission when he came back was to try and get at the state level the same kind of stuff that he had seen abroad. And uh, what I think is, in education today, we all need to make a kind of mental trip to Prussia that Horace Mann made then. But today the challenge is, what's the proper role for a federal government in an integrated society like ours to make sure that, uh, that every kid has a chance and that your life chances aren't fundamentally different, whether you're born in Boston or Birmingham. And so going through the history of this stuff, it's the same with the Healthcare stuff, with the history of the tax debates, which have never changed in ways I try and go through. Uh, you'll love the history in this book. Ask him.
2: We have and question. that's the
1: autopsy, really.
2: We have a question to your far left, Mr. Miller.
1: Yes.
4: Hi, my name is John Medlin. Uh, speaking of dead ideas, I was under the impression that the last 65 years we've seen the death of a dead idea called big government, you know, like Nazism and communism and socialism. It did not work. And so I'm, what, I, what I'm hearing from you is we're going to another cycle. We've going from the big government of uh, FDR, then we came into the individ- rugged so-called rugged individualism, individualism of Reagan, and now we're going to go back to big government with um, Obama. I mean, in point of fact, one percent of the population income they spend they pay forty percent of the income taxes. Sixty percent of the households. Pay no income taxes at all, my question is what is the dead idea
1: uh, i 'm very glad you asked that question. Uh, a couple of things you raised a lot of things let me answer let me try and respond quickly first, some of this is a matter of degree we 're not going i 'm not saying that where we 're headed now is to communism or fascism. Uh, and the, the easiest way to look at the size of government, I think, is what federal spending is as a share of the economy, or GDP. Today, it's around 20%. Now, even FDR, when it was uh, all through the Depression, it was, it, spending was tiny before FDR came in. Obviously, because of World War II, it became quite big. But all through the post-war period, it's been around you know, 19 or 20% of GDP. It actually popped up a little bit under Reagan and Bush I and then it went down a little bit under Clinton. People don't commonly understand that. When Clinton balanced the budget, he balanced it down by shrinking the size of the government compared to the size of the economy. Europe, you know, the the European states, uh, are at 45 or 50% of GDP, government spending and taxes. If you throw in our state level, because we have a different level of government, we're around 30. So what I'm saying is if we're at 30 today, and those guys are at 50, there's somewhere we're going to move to that's higher than 30. That's what it's going to be as the baby boom retires and as we do what I think we should do for some other things for the non-elderly like universal health coverage. We're going to move somewhere up from 30, but we'll be nowhere near the 45 or 50. And what's more, we're not going to adopt what I think are a lot of wrong-headed restrictions they have in labor markets, where because they make it, in a lot of European countries, next to impossible to fire someone, businesses don't want to hire people. And that's why we have you know the huge kind of issues with... Uh, job creation there that we haven 't had here, uh, but be, and yet that still leaves us challenges here, obviously to make sure that uh, the jobs can pay a living wage but there 's just a fundamental difference between where we are now, where fascism and communism were, and where the european welfare states are and we 're still going to be when the dust clears from what where I think we 're destined to head we 're still going to be more of a cowboy economy than some cradle to grave nanny state like uh, like some of the ones that my guess is you would not welcome so i think i think I think that 's where that's where we're headed, and to call it the, and to caricature it is the, I think it's a caricature to say that we're headed towards something that is uh, uh, as big and bad and ugly as that. I mean, we can do, we, we could end up with, uh, I mean, the last book I wrote was talking about how for two cents on the national dollar, we could do a ton of this stuff and still have government as small as it was when Reagan was president. So we got a long way to go before we're in any, uh, any danger of what I think you fear.
2: Question to your far left, Mr. Miller. Uh, Just to let you know, this will be the last question of the night. Uh, Any additional questions you may have can be addressed to Mr. Miller at our reception. Thank you.
3: Hi, my name is Veronica Pesinova, and I actually grew up in a communist system, so I already saw one system that was supposed to be great and just wasn't and collapsed. And I was very happy to come to the United States thinking, okay, this is the system that works and this is the democracy and uh, you know, free markets and all that. And while I think it's great that you're questioning it and, you know, having these dead ideas, I still see it as you're working within the established framework. And I wonder if you ever considered the fact that maybe the framework itself is just not correct, that it's still the same thing, that you have a small, powerful group of people. Very wealthy, controlling us, little people, the masses, and so maybe we need to start from scratch again. Just you know, the American version of capitalism and democracy maybe it's just not really working anyway. Like fundamentally.
1: Well, we can head into the reception with a call for revolution. I think that's uh, uh, well. I guess I don't. I guess I, d- I don't view American society as a small group of rich people who control everybody else. I don't believe that. I believe there's some very powerful people and their powerful interests, but I actually, I am a capitalist. I believe that, I believe that capitalism, if you regulate it the right way and harness these market forces for public purposes, has has done more to lift up people in terms of living standards. It's a whole other question about spirituality and morality and cultural norms, but it 's done more to improve the material situation of folks on the planet than any other system we 've yet invented, and I think it has the power and it is now raising you know the access to markets and the kind of global economic integration we 're seeing is lifting hundreds of millions of people out of desperate poverty around the world and I think the challenge for us at this moment is to figure out how to update our version of American capitalism so it doesn't uh, so it doesn't end up. Uh, hurting so many people that it creates a backlash that shuts down the benefits that I think this system brings not only for us but for for literally billions of people you know, who are living on a dollar a day, who don't have uh, flushing toilets, who uh, live in absolutely horrific conditions. And I think if we can, uh, in, in a funny way, I think we're in a race between capitalism's tendency in this era to wreck so many lives that it loses standing with the public and our ability to look at the facts anew wake up to the stakes and move forward with new ways of thinking that make American-style capitalism safe for the 21st century. So let me leave it there. Thank you very much for your attention. and. I would
2: like to thank everyone for coming out to little tonight. Uh, we would, li- would like to ask that everyone join us at the reception upstairs. And we also would like to remind you that Mr. Matt Miller's book will be on sale upstairs at the recep- reception. The title of the book is Tyranny of Ideas. Thank you. Have a good night.